I think first of all, like you change the narrative in your own mind. You decide that this is a beautiful community, that I love my community. I love the people in my community. I think it always starts with self. You have to decide that you're not going to use that language anymore when you talk about where you live, when you talk about the people that live in your community. And while being willing to have open conversations with others about who you are and what your community represents, you also realize that it's not your burden to convince them of your humanity and of your beauty. Like that is on them. That is work that they need to do in their own selves. Um, you guys are already beautiful. You're already a light. So if they can't look at you and see beauty and see light and know that you represent this community and your beauty and your light, and that makes your community beautiful and light, that is an issue that they have to work out within themselves. But I think for you, you change your mind, you change the way that you talk about your neighborhood and you lift each other up and you love on each other and you know that you're powerful and beautiful. That was Christina from Black Lives Matter 5280 and this is the Voice of Montbello podcast. The Voice of Montbello podcast. Welcome to the Voice of Montbello podcast. I am your host, Chewy, and today we're going to be speaking with Christina from the local chapter, Black Lives Matter. Here in Denver, uh, Christina from Los Angeles, California, and has raised a beautiful family in Denver. She is active and um, she's active and with her community and fight, uh, fighting for social justice. We also want to thank Christina for speaking with us and answering all of our questions. We also want to thank Claro for helping us organize our podcast and impact our communities. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Marmelo podcast. Today, uh, today we have one of the uh, members of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> okay, so, um, so we have a question here from Joanna. Do you want? Would you want to come? And of course, you guys, you are free to uh, do some follow-up questions if you guys please. What was it like starting the BLM program in Colorado? So I was not actually one of the original founders of the program here in Colorado. Each chapter starts whenever local people decide to organize and start one. But I can tell you that um, it started like less than two years ago. It was started by three really powerful, phenomenal women um, here in Colorado. And it was just a response to everything that was happening. It was a way to channel that and to activate and to organize and to um, make space for community here. I think it's been a really positive thing um, for those that have been able to get connected to the organization. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, has anyone ever discriminated against you? 
yeah, I think anybody that's a person of color experiences things that they call um, or that are called microaggressions, right? You have those experiences where people, you walk into a store and people don't acknowledge you um, because you're a person of color or they follow you around the store because you're a person of color. Or when I was in high school, I had an experience where myself and a group of my friends were all hanging out and we were pretty much told that we needed to disperse because we were kids of color and like that was something to be afraid of. Um, and hearing that when you're, you know, 16 years old is is pretty crazy. But yeah, absolutely, you have those moments where you experience discrimination. Could you be a little bit more specific? Like specific examples? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, the example of me in high school, obviously, um, was a form of discrimination. Um, I've had experiences through now that I'm a married woman through my husband with police officers specifically there's one in particular um, who is kind of in my area I'm obviously I obviously live in the area that she um, patrols and the way that she exercises her authority in our area is extremely discriminatory I mean to the to the to the point of like completely fabricating things, have had to go to court and fight tickets and things that were unjust because she just chose to target us because of who we are. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up actually in Los Angeles, California, so I'm not a native to Denver, Colorado. I lived there my entire life. I didn't move to Denver until... Um, not long after I graduated high school, so 2006 I moved here. So I lived 20 years in Los Angeles, California. So I was there when Rodney King happened, when the riots happened. I was there for all of that. Um, in the section where, where you live, do you think any other people face the same thing that you guys do? I mean, yeah. Again, I grew up, I grew up in the era where I literally stood across the street and watched people loot and things burn down in response to the verdict that came down from Rodney King. And I'm assuming you guys know what that is. If you don't, Rodney King was not the first, but he was the biggest um, instance of police brutality caught on tape and then showed to the mass public, kind of like what you guys are accustomed to now. It was not that way before. There were not cell phones with videos on them, um, and there was no way to capture it unless someone chose to do that. So someone happened to be standing by with a camcorder, recorded it, released it to the media, um, and that became public information and public knowledge what happened with Rodney King. And I lived during that time watching these officers not suffer any consequences for their actions, um, even though we all saw it on tape. So absolutely, discrimination happens, even in very liberal Los Angeles, California. Um, and I don't think that that's just to black people. I don't think it's just to um, myself. I think it's everybody that lives in my area experiences that. You're, you're categorized and you're, um, you're stereotyped by people in authority. Um, okay, so one is for me that, so do you have, do you have fun when you do your job? Do you feel, you know, like a very good person when you try to help people so your people and everyone else can have a better life? 
Absolutely. Um, I have the most fun doing things like this, coming out and talking to you guys, to youth, to young adults. Like that is where my heart and my passion is. Um, I love seeing you guys organize and activate and be activists now because things matter right now and you have opinions and voices right now. So yes, this is absolutely fulfilling for me. I love doing this stuff. <laughs> How do you feel about the African American? African Americans dying from police brutality. I think that um, for me personally, it feels very personal. It feels very close to home. It feels like I'm watching my family be murdered. It feels like I'm watching my brother or my sister or my cousins um, be murdered. Uh, when Corinne Gaines died, that that one still makes me cry because she was a mom. She had two babies, and she was just trying to um, do the right thing and, and teach her children the right thing. And as a mom to four kids who I try to raise to, to have uh, minds of justice and, and to be activists in their own way, that it felt very close to home. It felt like it was me. Um, being targeted and murdered and gunned down with my child, you know, right there. So when I see African Americans, black people, um, youth, brown kids, the boy, the situation in California right now in Anaheim, what happened with him, like, it infuriates me and it saddens me and it feels like an absolute assault on me as a person and not just them. What have you gone through during the program? Can you be more specific as to what you mean for me? <laughs> like, have you gone with troubles, any problems? Well, I don't think that. I think that the the name Black Lives Matter carries with it just a little bit of weight that makes people think twice about what they might say or do. Um, so we had an instance where, um, I don't know if you guys know about the situation that happened at the Aurora Mall the day after Christmas and the mall being shut down and... Um, we had a community member put an ask out on Facebook for people to show up. And so my husband and I went down there in our hoodies. Some other Black Lives Matter people came out um, just to make sure that these kids were being protected. And we video recorded everything. Um, we got so close that the media contacted us afterwards and were like, do you guys have some type of agreement with the police? Why were you guys able to be so close? And I think that there might just be that little bit of like, uh, I better not say too much or do too much to them just because they have a very national platform. So I would say in regards to being targeted specifically, um, like while in Black Lives Matter um, gear, I don't think that that's happened. I have, I always wonder if someone's going to say, is today gonna be the day that someone says something to me? Is today gonna be the day when I have to like, check somebody because they do like something really aggressive and I have not had that experience yet, thankfully. Um, so, so do you mean about the Aurora one? So, you know, like those kids that have those? Oh, my God, I was so close to them. Yes, yes. <laughs> I actually went up to the mall right after it happened, was able to talk to one of the family members of one of the girls that had been arrested and get his story. And um, my husband connected with him. So, yeah, we, we try to show up as much as we can for community, even in ways when people don't know that we're showing up. 
Um, so one question that me and Mr. Clifton were thinking about was that, okay, what was exactly the situation that happened? Uh, how, how did those kids get targeted? What happened? Yeah, so um, basically kind of what happened with that situation from eyewitness accounts is um, it looked like basically it was some it was something going on between some some youth. And so there were other youth that were kind of gathered around watching. You guys know when stuff goes on, you're like, oh, what's happening? You want to see, right? So there's all these kids kind of gathering around to see what's happening. And um, two girls were targeted by APD, and they were not the ones that initially started the situation. They weren't even actually directly involved in the situation. They were just bystanders. But the people that had caused the ruckus had already ran and gotten away so then all the bystanders, all the innocent, just people witnessing what was happening ended up being targeted. One girl ended up being slammed so hard that her shoes came off her feet. Um, another girl was pinned down to the ground by APD as well. Um, uh, basically, I, I think we see this a lot with police is that, and I think that's kind of the situation in Anaheim, right? They feel like they hold some type of ability where... Um, Disrespect. They, if they feel disrespected, that's enough of a reason to feel like they can target you. And so, yeah, the girl was being mouthy, and they felt like that was enough of a reason to be able to then body slam her into the ground, which, of course, it's not, right? Your parents don't get to throw you into a wall because you said you didn't want to clean your room. That's just not the way that it works. And so that's kind of the way that situation played out. The people that were arrested weren't even the original agitators. Yeah. Oh, I think it played I think it played the largest role in that incident because here's the thing, I don't I don't think that um a group of white kids would have caused the same fear, right? I mean, let's just be honest, when we look at media images of brown kids, of black kids, there's a certain stigma placed upon us, right? And it's one that makes people feel afraid. And so when you see 15 black kids in one space or 15 brown kids in one space, it, it engages the emotion of fear. And then you have a physiological response to that, right? Those black kids then being targeted also have a physiological response to being targeted. It's your fight or flight kicks in, right? I don't think that that same physiological response happens when we see 15 white kids standing in a room, right? I don't think that we call in backup three times when it's 20 white kids like they did in Aurora, you know? I don't think we show up with the um, assault level of weapons. I don't think we show up with shotguns, which they did in Aurora. I don't think we show up with the, you know, pepper spray grenade launchers like they did in Aurora when it's 20 white kids standing in a room. I think that if we're honest, we have to talk about that bias that comes into play because of the, med the, the images that they've been seeing their entire lives before they ever became police officers, right? Like their entire lives they've been taught that black and brown has a certain level of aggression and fear that should be associated with it. And that goes for all police officers of all colors, you know? And then once you come across that blue line, now you feel like you even more so are heightened, right? You even more so have to protect yourself. And so what may have been regular fear is now exacerbated by the position that you hold. So I think that race is the number one leading factor as to why they respond in the way that they do.
Okay. Um, I would like to know if, what if a colored male police officer would target a white dude, a white fellow? How would you feel? I feel like police officers, I feel like any abuse authority, authority is wrong, period. I don't care who did it. I don't care what color the officer was. I don't care if it's a, a POC officer to a POC person. I don't care if it's a POC officer to a white person, a white officer. To, it doesn't matter. Any abuse of authority, anytime that you feel like because you have a gun and a badge, you now get to abuse the people that you are supposed to protect and serve. That is not okay. And I, and I, and I also feel that there's a special type of relationship between communities of color and police officers and that's just us being realistic to acknowledge that um i actually have one and it was that so we have interviewed a, a police officer and um i would i would love if you guys can you know you know be together for once and we can you know do something so we can help so what's happening around here you know so we can clean that up because that uh the uh, police officer uh, Commander Thomas, he's a really good guy, and I think you guys will really love him. Yeah, I think I don't think that there's a such thing as I think we need to be clear about kind of where I can I can speak for myself where I stand on the institution of policing. It is not about any one individual police officer. I think that they're people just like I'm a person, right? And I think that they have humanity the same way that I have humanity, right? But when we look at the institution of policing and what that institution came from and and what it's here to uphold, right? Like, I don't know if you guys know, but police officers are derived from slave catchers. That is what that started as in America is when African-Americans would leave the plantation to try to escape. They sent out this brigade of people to bring back these black people to keep being able to make them do labor for free. Um, and to keep being abused because they were property and they had a certain value attached to them, right? That is exactly what policing d derives from, right? And so we see that still played out now. Police officers go out and they stop crime, but more often than not, their job is to ticket. Their job is to collect people, right? To serve, to, to collect on warrants, to get people, to put them in jail. And then when you go to jail, even according to the Colorado Constitution, you are allowed to basically be enslaved. You do work for no money. That is slavery. And according to the Colorado Constitution, that is okay. Um, still right now today. So when I, when I say that I have an issue with police, it is the institution of policing. It's not your individual uncle. It's not your individual cousin or friend. It is what that institution represents in America, what it's come from, and what it continues to do to communities of color. That is my issue. What would you like to change in the policing uh, law? Um, I'm actually someone that feels like we need to completely deconstruct and start over. Um, I'm one of those people that feels like you can't put a Band-Aid on an infected wound and think that it's going to get better. We have to dig much deeper than that. And I think that, you know, the same way if you wait too long on an infected foot, you're going to have to cut it off. You're not just going to be able to be like, oh, well, let me just give you some antibiotics and everything's going to be okay. It's already been six months. Well, it's already been decades. And I think at this point, we need to be realistic that 
until we gut the entire system and until we start all the way over with what that even means, what what does that even mean to police, right? Because right now they have a really muddy foundation and to try to build anything on that muddy foundation is just unsound. And so I think that there has to be a complete gutting and a complete rebuilding. And I think policing should look more like um, community engagement, right? More like um, I see something happening at my neighbor's house, right? And I can handle it or whatever, you know, but I just think that it needs to be more community engagement. I think it needs to be um, a complete gutting. I think that there shouldn't be promotions and moving up within the ranks shouldn't be based on quotas because that only encourages them to ticket unnecessarily. That only encourages them to target unnecessarily. I feel like if you want to police an area, you should have to live in that area. You should know the people that you're patrolling. You should know the people that you're policing. I think that there are lots of things that can be done to create better relations. But I don't think that that happens just by us deciding to do it with, you know, one group in one area. Um, I, I would like to see it more federally regulated than it is right now. Right now, policing is regulated by each individual district and each individual city and each individual state. There is no blanket what happens with police across the nation. And that's why you'll say, well, how come this police force does all this right and this one can't get it right? Because they're not held to the same standards. Um, and I don't know that a whole lot of people know that. And I think that that's something that could change that would be super helpful. Just saying, you would be an awesome president. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about politics. (laughs) I'm more of an activist. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the new president? What effect will the new administration have on the black community? His effect on communities of color. I feel like his effect on communities of color um, will be just as violent as every other president's effect on communities of color. There hasn't been a president that has, because they were passionate about justice for communities of color, done something powerful for communities of color. Have there been politicians and presidents that said, you know what, this is the right political move to make right now? Absolutely. Have there been presidents that we've been able to pressure into doing things positive for communities of color? Absolutely. Um, But 45 is doing everything they've always done. He's just doing it openly. And he's just doing it loudly. But there have been so many laws and acts and things done by former presidents that have discriminated against us. Redlining. That was our government that did that. That said, oh, everybody that lives on this side of the line, you don't have jobs in your communities. Your schools are not going to have the resources they need in your community. And we're going to put all the people of color over there on that side of the line. That was happening before 45 ever took office. And it will continue to happen until the people make it stop happening. ask you a question that has to deal with our community today yeah why do you think people rephrase our community as mont ghetto instead of mont bello that's a good question um i would say ignorance is probably the first thing they probably don't even know what a ghetto is (laughs) the fact that we use ghetto as an adjective at all is like inaccurate when we're talking about people (laughs) like that's 
it's not descriptive of a person. It's literally a place. Um, I would say ignorance. I would say I would say it has it has partly to do with the people that live in this community. Like, let's just be real, right? It's about what they think about people that live in this community and what we must represent. And oh, that's ghetto. Oh, that's hood, right? It's a way to. Um, it's a way to. What's the word I want? It's a way to deal a blow to your self-esteem. It's a way to keep you in your place. To let you know, like, this is who you are. And that doesn't always come just from people outside, right? Sometimes that's even in us. Sometimes we say things that are negative about our own selves, right? That self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, we do those things because we've been taught that that's what we are and that's who we are. And so that, that must be what we represent. And we embrace those things, um, and and I it's super dangerous, and ultimately I think it all just boils down to ignorance. It all just boils down to these are not people that live here. This is not their actual home. This is not a community that they love. So I get to degrade it because I'm detached from it. How do you how do you think that um, us as youth right, um, can? Uh, can kind of change that narrative and help people see what a beautiful place Mount Bellum is and the beautiful families that we have here. How can we, what, what, do you, what are some things that we can do to change the narrative? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, first of all, like you change the narrative in your own mind. You decide that this is a beautiful community, that I love my community, I love the people in my community. I think it always starts with self. You have to decide that you're not going to use that language anymore when you talk about where you live, when you talk about the people that live in your community. And while being willing to have open conversations with others about who you are and what your community represents, you also realize that it's not your burden to convince them of your humanity and of your beauty. Like that is on them. That is work that they need to do in their own selves. Um, you guys are already beautiful. You're already a light. So if they can't look at you and see beauty and see light and know that you represent this community and your beauty and your light, and that makes your community beautiful and light, that is an issue that they have to work out within themselves. But I think for you, you change your mind. You change the way that you talk about your neighborhood and you lift each other up and you love on each other and you know that you're powerful and beautiful. And... And, and challenge everybody else to do that same work in regards to you guys in your community. What do you like about this program? What don't you like? Are you asking me about Black Lives Matter specifically? Yes. Okay. Um, I can tell you what I love about Black Lives Matter is that it centers the leadership of black women. Um, I think that that is so powerful and important especially because women have been doing the work and just have not been centered in it um, or not acknowledged in it, right? When we look at the, the things and the work that the civil rights movement and, and all that happened in the 60s, we don't hear women's stories very often, but they were doing the work. And if we do hear women's stories, it's usually a man telling her story. It's not another woman telling her story. It's not her telling her story. So I love that they center the leadership of black women. I love that they are intentional about acknowledging that even within the black community, as marginalized as black people are, there are people that are further marginalized, are queer, are gender nonconforming, you know, are trans folks. They are even further marginalized. 
one in 13 trans people will be murdered. That is a gigantic number. That's literally like one of us in this room. One person in each of your classrooms, right, would be murdered as a trans person. And so I think that it's so important for them to um, continue to hold up all black lives and say, yes, and... (laughs) There are even things within our community that we need to deal with and that we need to be conscious and aware of. Um, what I would what I would like to see less of is kind of this coining of the hashtag by just random people and that being used as a representation of the movement, right? Um, you have your right wing, you know, ultra conservative folks that will say Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. And they want to, they call police officers pigs and they want to kill all police because there's someone somewhere that used that hashtag and used that verbiage and so that must represent the movement. So while I think Black Lives Matter is a huge testament to the power of social media, the fact that this love letter turned into a hashtag that then took off and created a movement, I think that's powerful. I think I also would like to see less, <laughs> less ability of people to manipulate that to their own agendas. How do you feel about people saying all lives matter? Ooh, I cannot stand that. Um, <laughs> here's why. I don't think that it's up for debate that all lives matter. Like, is that really, are we really questioning whether everyone's life is valuable? I don't think that that's a valid debate. Um, and it and it's bothersome only because we never heard that verbiage until someone decided to say that black lives mattered, Right. So it's just like your friends, you know, you saying, oh, man, I love to play basketball. I want to go on and, you know, go to college on a full ride scholarship. I'm going to work out every day so I can be amazing. And then your friend's like, oh, well, you know, I've always wanted to do that, too. And they want to just like jump onto that and like make it their thing in a way to discredit your thing. And that's essentially the heart of All Lives Matter. Right. Is that we said, hey. Stop killing us because our black lives matter. And they were like, oh, wait, hold on, wait, no. We're not going to talk about your life. We're going to talk about everyone's life. But we don't actually see them activating to protect all lives, right? Because if they really thought all lives matter, then us saying black lives matter wouldn't be an issue. They'd be at the rallies with us because they believe that all lives matter and that includes my black life. Uh, I'm just saying, um, what if everyone was able to hear um, what you always wanted to say, you know, something that you would want to inspire them? What if everyone got the chance to actually hear that? What do you mean? Like, what would I say to them? Uh, that, um, that Black Lives Matter and, you know, all of this, what's happening is wrong. What if, you know, because people don't really believe that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there was a way for you to prove and they would listen, uh, how would you feel about that, you know? So I think, I think that the proof is already there, right? That there's a targeting of black people, that there's a targeting of people of color in America. I, I think that you have to be pretty dense and probably bigoted to choose not to see that, right? So I think the proof is there. I think how I would feel if everyone understood that and then lived their lives like there were communities being targeted I would feel encouraged 
I would feel joyful. I would feel like this country has an ability to make change. Um, because while we, while we do, our government is extremely instrumental in the way that we live our lives, there is no power like the power of the people. We outnumber them every single day. Um, we decide whether they have jobs or not, you know? And so I think if the people could really get behind the fact that, man, we need to stand with our brothers and our sisters that are being targeted, whatever that particular marginalized community is, that I would feel joyful, I would feel happy, I would feel hopeful, I would feel loved, I would feel like um, I'm valued and I'm seen and I'm appreciated in this country. How do you feel about people migrating to the USA? Our country is a country of migration. Every single person that's here, unless they're of African descent, migrated here. Like, or, or unless um, by choice, I should say. Migrated here by choice. And the only people that weren't migrating here were Native Americans. So I feel like the country is, we're all immigrants. And so I feel like when your country is built on that premise, that you can come here and have freedom of religion, that you can come here and have, you know, freedom to be who you are, um, however limited they were in actually exercising that when they founded the country. When your country is built upon that premise, to then say that we don't want immigration is kind of like foolish and it's it's pretty hypocritical. And it's, um, it just seems, it feels very hateful. And, um, and it feels very fearful, right? Like we're afraid of people coming into this country. I, I feel like I'm not afraid of people coming here. I feel like I always assume in best, best intentions with folks. And so I feel like this is what our country is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be a melting pot. So let's, let's let that happen. And let's make it easier for people to get their citizenship. People don't come here and like want to live here and not have citizenship. We make it extremely difficult for people to go through that process. So I feel like there has to be checks and balances with anything that we do, but I don't feel like our borders should be closed. I don't feel like we should be shutting people out. I feel like we need there's a responsible way to have immigration in this country, and I feel like we should look at ways to actually do that. What does Black Lives Matter um, do for immigrants? So BLM 5280 is actually um, pretty involved with various organizations. They feel like intersectionality is important. There's, there's not only my struggle, right, that all of our struggles are connected. So they've been um, very involved with, I'm sure y'all have probably heard about Jeanette um, here locally. And so they've been really involved with helping her um they've been really involved with lifting the voices of immigrants um here they've been involved with organizations like surge who are doing things specifically um to try to counter some of the things happening with ICE um we have people involved in conversations um to find out updates and details as to how we protect community BLM is not if you don't know this about our particular chapter, they are not very big on like, 
here's our checklist of things that we're doing. Um, that's just not how we roll. Um, BLM Pitch 280 feels like it's more important just to show up for community than to kind of like give our receipts on community. But they're extremely involved in people's very personal situations with immigration um, and doing their best to lift the voices and to keep people aware that like Im- immigrants look all different kinds of ways and are all different kinds of colors. There are Indians from India that are afraid of being deported. You know, there are um, Mexicans afraid of being deported. There are Kenyans afraid of being deported. Like immigrants don't look just one way. And it's important for us to remember that intersectionality and that we're all connected in that way. And to can you continue to lift the voices of those people. Um, what does the whole group Black Lives Matter mean to you? To me specifically, um, and are you talking about my local chapter? Is that what you're asking me? Are you asking me just about the local chapter specifically? Um, no, like what The does, national? Yeah. The national movement of Black Lives Matter, to me, means love for black life. It means value for black life. It means seeing black life, right? Um not just as I'm, I'm, I'm a black person that's also a woman. So I experience even further marginalization, right? Um, for me, the movement nationally of Black Lives Matter means that there are people that are willing to stand up and rally behind me and in support of me and to lift me up and to lift my life up and to lift my voice up. So that people don't get to say, oh, I didn't even know that that was happening to you. Because there are people lifting my story. There are people lifting my trials. And there are people sharing my burden. So for me, the national movement is one of love. It's one of unity. It's it's valuing me. It's appreciating me. It's seeing me. Seeing me is really, really important. And, and that's that's what that means for me. It's super powerful for me personally. Um, Justin, do you have any final thoughts for us? Um, yeah, I would. Um, I would encourage you guys to continue doing what it is that you're doing. I would encourage you guys to. Um, this is Women's History Month, so I would encourage you guys to be super intentional about hearing the voices of your sisters. You have many ladies present in this room, and not that you don't do this, but be super intentional about hearing their voices, about seeing them, about meeting their needs as women understand that we are all marginalized people as black and as brown right as any person of color we're all marginalized and as women they're further marginalized and be intentional about hearing them and seeing them um the perfect example is the situation in anaheim that happened with the the young boy christian and the police officer and there were articles for days afterwards talking about, oh man, look at look at how those black boys were the first ones to stand up and stand up for him and to, to step in, and they weren't the first ones. It was a little brown girl that was the first person to step in. But people don't see her because she's a girl. Everyone's talking about Colin Kaepernick and kneeling for the national anthem and who's gonna do it this Sunday. And he wasn't the first one. The WNBA was doing it way before him. But they don't see them because they're women. 
So be aware as you do this activist work, as you organize for your community, as you lift up your voices, that you make sure to make space for your sister's voices, that you make space for the queer voices, that you make space for the gender nonconforming, non-binary folks' voices. Because even within our marginalized group, we have further marginalizations and we have to be aware of that intersectionality in order to really do our jobs effectively. And I'm super proud of (laughs) y'all. Thank you a lot for being here and it was a good day. Absolutely, my pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, of course. That interview made me feel or made me open my eyes because it made me feel ashamed how there is still violence in America and children and people of color get to see police brutality that Christina talked about. And I have to say that was very hurtful that people disrespect people of color and discriminate against one another. I was interested to hear that she was hurt and when people got to say that all lives matter because clearly there's a specific communities who are getting targeted. I think that people should treat everyone with respect, and that's why it's important to say Black Lives Matter. The Voice of Mom Bello Podcast.